the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Maddox are also holding the official planning exchange three-year party on the 1st of November, where we'll be inviting all of our podcast guests, sponsors and supporters along for a glass of wine and canapes. Today we're speaking with Jesse Hochberg, the co-founder and CEO of Nightingale Housing. Jesse jumped into the startup social enterprise space after working across Creative Victoria as a senior policy and strategy advisor and within the strategic infrastructure project team. She's passionate about the opportunity for the emerging democratisation of the financing sector to positively influence the development of urban environments. If you don't know what Nightingale is and you live in Victoria, then you've been clearly been living under a rock. Luckily, we have Jesse here to tell you all about it. Welcome, Jesse. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. Um, are you able to just give us a little bit of a background um, to where you came from? So what, what did you do at university and how did you then come into Creative Victoria? Yeah, sure. Um, so my first degree at university was art history and cultural studies. And from there, um, I jumped into a role through an internship at Creative Victoria, which was then Arts Victoria. And I found myself eventually in the infrastructure project team, which is where I spent most of my career before jumping out into the startup social enterprise space. And tell us about the name Nightingale. So uh, Nightingale, our very first project is on Florence Street. And that's where the name Nightingale comes from. But it's also beautiful because Florence Nightingale was a social revolutionary. She completely changed the way that nursing was done Mm -hmm. through um, very simply um, implementing hand washing across all nursing. Mm. So saved many lives by the implementation of a very simple methodology, which was already known. Mm, Amazing. Now, um, we have listeners all across the world. So there are going to be some people that don't actually know what Nightingale is. Are you able to just, I know this is probably really difficult, to try and give a two-minute description of what Nightingale is and how it actually operates? Yeah, absolutely. So Nightingale itself is simply a methodology for placing humans and human needs at the centre of the property development process to produce better outcomes than the property sector is currently developing. Um, We've envisaged a world in which all property development um, is built to create well-being, sustainability and livability in urban environments. And we think that there's a great opportunity within the property development sector to deliver significantly better outcomes across um, ecological, uh, financial and social sustainability, as well as refocus projects to have a primary goal of providing value back to the communities in which they exist. Jesse, that's an incredibly... um uh, first principle approach to housing. Are others in the space, or have you have you seen examples that you like and sort of uh, changed that model, or or is is this a brand new thing? Do you think? 
I don't think it's a brand new thing, um, but I think what Nightingale does specifically is it looks across the whole spectrum of what should housing be doing and what are the key things that, that need to be the principles of housing development, and it gives them equal weight. So we've seen, um, uh, I guess, a new generation of um, younger boutique property developers, and they're doing some great things, uh, usually across one of those spheres, so maybe very ecological uh, developments, very sustainable developments, or we've seen some great initiatives to really involve communities and in new property developments. Um, and we try and, well, lead by bringing all of those elements together and giving them equal weight so that the outcomes will be holistic and, and um, I guess, better in the long term of that development and that society. Now, here's a bit of a tricky one. So what have been some of the challenges in breaking free from the traditional funding models? Yeah, there's been a lot of challenges. Yeah, I can um, imagine. <laughs> breaking free. And I guess um, we went into it, um, not as Nightingale Housing, but the leading project, which was Nightingale One by Breathe Architecture, led by Jeremy McLeod, went, to it with, went into it with a, a relative... Uh, level of naivety, which is incredibly important, <laughs> I think, um, for morale and also for breaking down barriers. So um, I think that was a fantastic thing. So the, I guess the number one challenge that we found is that um, I guess a lot of people talk about the not ideal outcomes of property development. And what we found was that the issue was actually sat with the financing models. So form, the outcome of property or housing, really follows the financial model. And we feel that there's um, a bit of a broken financial model. And so at the moment, um, one of property or housing development, it's a core human need. Our population's increasing. We need more housing. We all agree on that. Um, but the model's a bit broken where it's viewed as a very risky business proposition to do housing development and of course there's certainly risks involved um, but the way it's currently structured is so high risk because um, we're not putting people the people are going to be living there at the center that the risks I think are artificially increased mm -hmm. and when you start to put the community who are, are impacted by the development and people are going to live there at the center of the process you can actually massively reduce the risk of the development and therefore um, maybe investors will be okay with taking a lower return. Um, but at the moment, we have one um, financial model or risk assessment across all types of property development. And I think the reality is, is that different developments have different risk levels. And currently, there seems to be no way to weight that in the market. Jesse, big question. What, what do you think is the biggest market failure in, in housing? What do you attribute it to? Is it the financial setup that mm. underpins new development? Would you say that is, is that what you were alluding to? I would say that it is. So at the moment we have um, only a purely speculative model being applied. Mm. And so that is a failure because the provision of housing is not speculative. Our population is growing by 2050. There's gonna be 15 million new people in Australia and we currently know that we don't really have policies or a plan about where are those people going to live, but we know that they're going to need housing. And so in reality, property development actually isn't speculative, but the way that it's set up within the financial market is that 
it is speculative or it's viewed as speculative. And the reason that it's speculative is that it's catering um, to a market which sees property primarily as a vehicle for financial return mm. rather than a provision of housing. And basic I th- right. Yeah, and I th- a basic mm. right, absolutely. Mm. And I think once you flip that and recognise that it is a right that everyone needs the provision of housing, you start to look at it not as a, a speculative in- through the speculative investment lens, then you can get better outcomes. So what's the current profit expectation from banks for property development? Is it 20%? Uh, It varies a little bit depending on sales, but um, banks see the best way to reduce their market risk as to have a very high profit margin. Mm. But then you get into a spiral because as you get a higher profit margin, you need to start reducing the quality of the property or increasing the price. So um, the bank's expectation is that a higher profit margin equals lower risk. But the reality is that if you increase the value of the home, some, you know, property developers call it or banks call it product, and you lower the price, you actually reduce the risk as well. So there's an expectation at the moment, it varies, but uh, between the lowest may be 17 and the highest may be 30%. Sorry, okay. it can actually, you know, as high as it can go is seen mm. as ideal, but between 70 and 30% um, is seen as a, a decent or, or low risk um, profit margin. Jesse, w- when property prices have been accelerating in Australia, mm. some people rejoice. I always view it as house in price inflation, so that it's locking a lot of people out of the market and it's creating housing not as we've traditionally had it in terms of accessibility. Mm-hmm. But is there should should the community rejoice or be repelled by house price inflation? Do you think it's a very very difficult one? Um, in Australia, traditionally, your financial security is tied to your your home, which is generally most people's primary asset in Australia. So I can certainly understand why somebody would rejoice as their, um, you know, home or primary asset is inflated. That feels good. Um, But what it does, unfortunately, in the long run is it creates inaccessibility um, for their families, for their children. People outside the tent. Certainly. And I think what people sometimes don't recognise is once you see your your own assets starting to inflate, you feel great. But if everybody is in the same boat, you're actually not really progressing financially um, unless you sell your home. And then the reality is, is that if you want something similar you actually, you're not really making a profit. It's just sort of this feeling of um, being wealthier without the reality of being wealthier. And I think in the long term, by by locking, um, you know, a majority now of society out of secure um, and stable living arrangements, actually you're worse off. So let's say your property price or all the property prices around you increase to, for example, $2 million, um, which is, you know, a, a property in the middle suburbs in Melbourne, for example, um, what you might not really realise is that you've then locked out all of the key service workers who you need to function in a great society. So you've locked out um, the teacher who's going to teach your kids at school from living anywhere near that suburb. And then the price of housing is worn by them through long commute times, uh, poor quality housing. And so you do eventually wear those costs. And I don't know whether we truly recognise that as a society yet, that we've passed on the costs essentially to ourselves in an indirect manner. Hmm. Hmm. 
Jesse, can, can you step us through the process of a Nottingale project from site finding to residents moving in? Again, in a very condensed form, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's a long process, isn't <laughs> it? Um, so Nightingale projects, uh, they either start off with the intention to do a Nightingale project or they'll apply for a licence with um, the site already. We have um, now an independent licensing committee which is headed up by Jill Garner, um, who's the Victorian government architect at OBGA. And we have um, most of the government architects around Australia and now New Zealand who provide advice to us. Um, and we explore when someone applies for a licence um, it's not only architects now, we've done our first project with a boutique developer, which we're very proud of. We look at the whole history and ethic of that person's individual and their company's work. Um, do they have a, a history of providing and pushing for great quality outcomes, for the best outcome for their community, the most sustainable outcomes? And um, if they do, and we think they would be able to deliver the full ethos of Nightingale, we provide them with a license, access to all of the property development IP which we've developed or projects have developed to date and given back to Nightingale Housing as, as the nucleus of Nightingale. Um, and we provide them with support to either go out and find a site or start their development. And as soon as um, they know where their site is going to be, we bring the community, the end users, the residents, to the centre of that process. We find out what their functional needs are and then everything flows from there. Um, building homes, housing for that community, driving down the prices through efficiencies, through, uh, you know, an ethos of reductionism and sustainability, and, um, and then the traditional property development process going through planning, seeking financing, and then eventually delivery and moving in. So you're very protective of your brand, if I can call it that, and that's, that circles around with the, the, the integrity. That's what I'm getting from this. What's important to us, um, it's not our brand. Well, it, I, mean, I mean that in a very loose sense. Yeah, it's the, it's the integrity of our partners. So mm. Nightingale is intended um, to always be community-led. So uh, we're just the nucleus, we're just the support organisation and we really support communities and organisations um, to deliver their own Nightingale projects um, through support through us. So we're, we're a support organisation. And what about, um, you know, if I wanted to buy into Nightingale, what would be the process for me or for Pete? You might, you need a new house. I, I've you been think? asked to ask you this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, what, what's the actual process from start to finish in that sense? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, so it's interesting because a lot of people, when they consider buying property, they're looking at, okay, I want to buy property, I want to move in in six months' time. Mm. But the Nightingale process, because there's, it's really important to us, it's a key principle that the end user the homeowner will have agency, they mm. come in a lot earlier. So the first thing you would do, Jess, is you jump on our website and <laughs> register. Not, not that I'm looking. But <laughs> <laughs> or if anyone listening who's looking, um, you jump on our website and you would register your interest to be a purchaser of a Nightingale property. You tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about what you're interested in, what areas you're interested in. Um, that's all. And then once we have a potential project, we reach out to our community and we ask them who's interested in being a potential resident. We try and give as much information as possible, as transparently as possible. So, you know, this is the site, this is the timeline, this is what the finances look like. Mm -hmm. And then um, that community will opt in. So it's an opt-in process. And once we've found that community, we work with them to 
really understand their functional needs and to deliver that through the project. And then eventually um, we'll get to balloting. So if demand outstrips supply, which mm. um, it has on all of our projects to date, we'll just do a lottery um, to assign the properties to people. Um, yeah, then throughout the process, actually, it's really interesting because as you'd know, uh, throughout any construction project, there can be variations. And what's really important to us is that we're not making the, the calls um, on those decisions, it's actually the purchases. So if something is running a bit over or something's running a bit under, how do we spend that money or how do we reduce project costs? Ultimately, the purchasers get the say in, in where they place value. So they're very involved through that process as well. So is that, does that basically mean, so Nightingale might say that a one-bedroom apartment is going for $600,000 approximately, um, and then me as the purchaser, I can say, I want to spend the money in this way. I don't want, not that you'd have two, two bathrooms in a one-bedroom apartment anyway, but, you know, you can opt down of particular Customise, customise, yeah. So it's a process of understanding um, the purchaser's functional requirements rather than... Um, I guess it is customization, but really at that functional level. So yeah. even before we have, you know, do you want a one bedroom with two bathrooms? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that was a terrible It's okay. Example. Maybe you want a different <laughs> bathroom for each person in the couple. Um, we'd, we'd ask you through um, a participatory design process, dress, how do you live your life? Uh, are you an extrovert who loves to socialise? by having people over? Are you an introvert who loves to read a book in bed? Mm -hmm. And we will design the apartment to those specifications. So understanding that if you are that introvert, you're gonna place more value on more space in your, perhaps your bedroom rather mm. than your living room if you're not entertaining. Um, are you someone who really wants to, you know, wash your clothes in your own home through your own laundry? Um, then we'll tell you that it will cost you an extra 15000 yeah. um, and it will take some room off your bedroom or your living space. Or would you be okay or would you prefer to use a communal laundry? You'll save money. Um, it'll be a little bit more social. Mm -hmm. um, but this is what the outcome will be. So it's a, it's a very functional design process earlier on. And then um, once the design is locked in, there is an opportunity for a little bit of customization once we know exactly who that person is. Mm. But ultimately, it's really about getting the functional design right rather than choosing, you know, the type of tap wear at the end. Mm. Um, just with, with the planning process, it's very adversarial. Uh, mm. It can be and there can be long delays. What could the planning system do to encourage, you know, the, the sort of innovative housing approaches that Nightingale do? I'd love to throw that question back to you as the planning experts, because I don't <laughs> come from a, a background of planning. So yeah. I do have some amazing advisors around us who provide us with advice. But I'm very conscious that Nightingale needs to play by the same rules as any other developer. Mm. Um, I would love to see a situation where the planning system recognises true deliberative development versus a speculative development model 
um, and there's some allowance or flex within that because what we realised in Nightingale 1, we knew who the purchasers were, we knew exactly what they wanted. Mm. Um, there was a huge amount of community support, but still the project was rejected based on a technicality, which is just applied to all developers. And it's not to say that that technicality shouldn't have been applied, but it really highlighted that it is an adversarial system where the current residents or one single resident um, can object to a project that has massive amount of community support and very little weight is given to the future communities needs or desires versus the current community so i would like yeah i'd throw that question back to you is that, that, planning that, what you've outlined jesse is that waiting for the people sort of in the in the waiting and the balancing of things mm. that there should be waiting waiting given to the momentum behind the project uh, and almost like the mini community that wants to move in that's a good question we'll explore i know stuart morris has talked about this issue mm, definitely Song Bowden provides town planning services throughout Victoria. They are recognised within the industry for providing planning, advocacy and expert evidence in VCAT hearings. So give Dave Song or Dan Bowden a call to discuss your planning needs. And SALT, Traffic Engineering and Victorian Planning Reports. Jesse, what historical references have been a motivation for Nightingale? Uh, Nightingale is very or is very inspired by uh, Robin Boyd's Small Houses program, which I just learnt today developed or produced 40% of new homes in the period that it was operating, which is just so incredible that something that was very design-led is producing such huge outcomes and the Robin Boyd Foundation played a huge part in the genesis of Nightingale Housing. They supported our first iteration of a purchaser wait list and, um, and were involved in the steering committee when we got started. For, for listeners who don't know about that program, uh, as I understand it, uh, architects of the 50s designed templates for you know, standard house lots, but it was a very modernist design and people could purchase those plans at relatively low cost and give them to their builders. Is that about how you understand it? That's how I understand it. Um, so it was about democratising access mm -hmm. to really good design. So I guess at that time, but certainly um, I guess in current day, to access great designers, the leading designers, you have to be very wealthy. Mm -hmm. And I guess what we're interested in doing is making really good housing design available to everybody, which will eventually produce better outcomes, not only for our cities, but I think future generations. Like we don't, when you produce housing, it's not a moment in time where you get the option to have a do-over or recreate your city. Any decision that we're making now at the macro level of planning or at the micro level of how does the interior of a one-bedroom apartment look is going to not only influence us, but will influence future generations for potentially the next 100 years and, and probably leave a legacy that has impacts beyond that. So I think we really need to ask ourselves, what is the legacy that we're leaving for 100 years? Is it the best possible housing outcome that we want our grandkids to live in? Or is it something that's so poor quality that we're going to have to, you know, start over again at, at huge financial cost to a future generation? And do you see the ability for Nightingale to scale up? 
I think it's imperative that uh, the model is taken up by as many people as possible. Mm. And that's because Nightingale just really is, it's just a methodology to produce what people need and what people want and provide great value through housing back to the people who live there. So what we'd love to see is that the, the model with its holistic outcomes across financial sustainability, which is true affordability, um, ecological sustainability, which affects us all, and social mm. sustainability, those key principles and then transparency as well are taken up by as many people who are producing housing as possible. Jesse, there's a lot of flavours in what you're, what you're talking about. One, I, I sense, is this frustration with traditional models and uh, that holistic approach you, you believe Nightingale brings to housing. Mm. Uh, I hate to use the word disruptors, but you know, you, to me you're a housing disruptor. You're changing the model or you're showing it a different way. Hmm? I, Fair? <laughs> we um, lead through demonstration. Um, whether that's you know, radical disruption or slow change, as long as we get to those good outcomes, um, I mean, we don't mind how you describe it, but what's really important is that we show that housing or multi-residential apartment buildings um, and density can be delivered in a way that benefits everybody, not just the developer or the financiers, and that we not only show that it can be done, but we show that there's great incentives, market incentives to do it. So it's not a philanthropic thing that can only be delivered, you know, through goodwill. It makes great financial sense for our cities and for developers to put people and people's needs at the centre of their processes. Along that same theme, obviously our housing in Australia has always been centred around the car. How do you see the evolution of technology impacting on projects such as Nightingale, um, such as driverless cars and that sort of thing? It's so exciting, it isn't, is, it? isn't it? I wish I had, you know, this, um, you know, way to see into the future. <laughs> but I think um, we know enough to know that, you know, the age of the car-centric city is over. Mm. Um, all cities in Asia and, you know, across the world now are preparing for driverless cars. And what that means is um, a very different infrastructure will be required than what we currently have. What we think, think is very important um, through new housing provision is a decoupling of private car ownership to access to different modes of transport. So um, it's very exciting. What's very um, important to us is that whatever we're producing now is and will be adaptable for different uses in the future. So in 100 years when we're, you know, zooming around in flying driverless cars, <laughs> um, are the buildings that we're producing now, are they adaptable um, for different uses? And I think what we see is uh, infrastructure that was produced a long time ago is very adaptable, but perhaps what we're currently producing isn't very adaptable. So that adaptability, I think, will be um, a key feature or should be a key feature in new developments. Yep. Um, one thing I just wanted to touch on as well is about social connection and how Nightingale is improving connection for residents. I know we spoke earlier about communal laundries and communal rooftop terraces. How is that contributing to social connection for residents? So what I find kind of shocking is that in this age of hyper-connectivity, there's increasing social isolation. 
um, and that's reported through stats around mental health and, and self-reports. And what's been very clear to us when we engage our residents is that social connectivity is incredibly important to them. Um, not only from the aspect of, you know, having great relationships with your neighbours, but also a sense of social security. So if you are a person who is, um, you know, perhaps in retirement and wants to age in place, it's incredibly important that your neighbours know who you are um, in case you find yourself in trouble, um, that they'll be able to offer that support. You'll have enough connection where you're able to ask for that support. And we're actually finding that a majority of people are self-describing as introverts, which means they don't want to be hyper-social, um, but they do want to have that sense of traditional community of knowing people around them, caring for people around them, and that sense of, you know, a village, a local village. I think mm. it's incredibly important as a base human need to have social security. That doesn't mean, you know, parties on the roof with 100 people, <laughs> but but knowing knowing your neighbour, mm. caring for your neighbour. And being able to say hello in the stairs or in the lift. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's incredibly important um, for most stages of people's lives, whether you're having young babies and you want to mm. have a sense of being able to call on that neighbour for a bit of babysitting mm. when you need it. Um, um, or you've just run ha- out of milk. You've run you out, run of, out of milk, or yeah. you know, even I guess you know, letting the kids run free around, knowing mm. your neighbours is in- is incredibly important. Yeah, when I did my um, thesis with my masters in public health, I um, looked at social connection for the elderly in aged care, which is slightly different to this. But one of the um, one of the key figures or the key stats that has stayed with me is I think social connection has been. Um, attributed to, I think it's two packs of cigarettes per day in terms of what the actual health impact is of having poor social connection. Isn't that crazy? That that's amazing. But I think intuitively we know these things. Yeah. But how do you turn that intuition, that that knowledge of a you know the value of a village that's been around forever? Mm. How do you implement that through our current systems where property and housing is seen as a financial asset only? Mm. Um, We need to reinsert that sense of social good into the process. Jesse, I suppose it's the, the values in the buildings that we make. I mean, Churchill said, you know, we make our buildings, then they make us. Mm. So maybe we've lost that. Getting onto that point of size of developments, do you think there's a certain scale where, you know, there's a law of diminishing returns if you get too big in terms of social connections in, in, in apartment buildings? Yeah, certainly. Um, so Nightingale has used some research that came out of Denmark which said that beyond... 40 units per development, people struggle to create those meaningful social connections. So we've implemented, self-implemented a maximum size of 40 units per Nightingale development. That's not to say there can't be many developments on a site, but they need to be separated through their infrastructure um, so that communities have a chance to become cohesive at the scale which we know that they can, 40 units. Now, where do you actually see see Nightingale going in, let's say, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years even? (laughs) Um, I think what 
Nightingale is, is it's just a methodology to respond to what people need or want. So um, as our planning systems change, as our financial systems change, we might change as well. Mm. Um, But what will remain, absolutely will remain the same, is that what people want or need in housing Um, the end users and the communities that will always be placed at the centre. So their needs might change and will evolve or the projects will evolve to meet those needs. Jessie, what do you know now that you you didn't know at the start of uh, Nightingale? Uh, We didn't know how many people would want agency in the development of their own home which sounds like a very silly thing to say in hindsight because of course people want agency Um, but it's been really amazing how much support there's been across the spectrum for a people a citizen-led development process it's been yeah it's been incredible and how do you unwind and what do you do outside of work (laughs) <laughs> do you have any time outside of work? <laughs> uh, yes. I <laughs> I know you do a lot of camping. I do. Um, I think my vice is yoga and a glass of wine. I think that's, that, that's balance. Often, you know. It's definitely balance. At the, not at the same time, but certainly <laughs> in the same evening. Yeah, it provides a bit, a bit of balance. Well, thanks, Jesse. Um, and to Jess, this is our 30th podcast. I hope uh, our listeners are enjoying um, this the series as much as we do, and uh, I hope you continue to listen. So thanks again, Jesse. Marvelous, marvelous interview. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Shiny day.